Let's pray. Father God, a blessing is upon us now that we get to open your word together, gathered on a beautiful morning together with a hope that's eternal. And all this is only because of you. And so help us to uh, meditate rightly. Speak to us deeply about the things that you have recorded. Allow us to see more of your glory in them. I pray that our feast this morning would be in this hour. And we thank you for your desire to uh, hand to us good things, feed to us good things that are of eternal significance. So let us be amazed as you speak. Let us be in awe of what you've done and be changed by what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a temptation uh, within Christianity and certain organizations that find themselves under the label of Christian or nonprofit to look at Jesus and sometimes pigeonhole him into what he can teach us about leadership. Uh, and then maybe to write books about that or something, which isn't necessarily all bad. But when you're dealing with Jesus, you're dealing with more than a leader, right? I mean, by the nature of his office as king of the kingdom of heaven, he is a leader. But he is more transcendent than that. He's bigger than that, right? Lord, to call him Lord, just as Paul's doing in Philippians 3, recounting what kind of gain he has to be able to call him Lord, is so much more than looking to him for leadership lessons, right? It is, it is looking to him to see God. Looking to Him to know God. We look at our leaders in your job or in your family or whatever, and you look to them as examples to follow, right? We follow Christ, sure. We look at His example in the Gospels, and we seek to imitate that, or even imitate those who are following Christ. But when you take a longer look, right, you're, you're supposed to see more. You're supposed to see the exact imprint of God's nature, the visibility of His invisibility present in Jesus. You're supposed to see your Savior, your King, your Lord, a friend that's closer than a brother. You're supposed to see the prize and the treasure 
of your eternal soul. That everything would pale in comparison to knowing him. And so what Jesus is doing here in his baptism is not merely showing us how to follow after him. He is, in fact, inaugurating the kingdom of God as he begins his ministry and identifying himself with us, which is absurd, right? I was uh, listening to a a well-known college football coach this week, and he was talking to his support staff, people that serve meals, people that do equipment, stuff like that. And he was explaining to them that I don't care what position you find yourself in this organization, if a trash can is full, change it out. If somebody in another department needs help, help them out. In other words, identify yourself with the group. So so when you look at Jesus, you have to understand that he's not simply a leader identifying himself with his people, like I might or like you might. He is God identifying himself with sinners. That's why he gets baptized. He doesn't need it, obviously. And they understand that. John and Jesus, they're on the same page. But something greater is happening here. He is proclaiming what he's come to do. To be that Lamb of God. To identify himself with the sins of his people. That they might be identified by his righteousness. The overarching theme of Jesus' baptism and and what that foreshadows at the end of his earthly ministry is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order that we might become the righteousness of God. So the identification of Jesus with his people in this baptism is what you need to see. Sure, you are commanded to be baptized, right? Following your understanding of what has taken place by the grace of God in your heart, you are commanded to be baptized. But you can go back a month or two and we talked about what baptism actually is, right? There's symbolism involved with it. It's not the act that saves you. It's, a, it's an act of obedience that proclaims what saved you or who saved you. And so Jesus must do this. He doesn't need to do this, but he must do this. So verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Obviously, this is odd. And it even throws some people off in their theology because they would think, oh, well, then then Jesus is a man, just a man. Because he's identifying himself uh, needing to repent as well. No, we're going to understand that that's not the case. And John is perplexed by this. John, as the last Old Testament prophet, doesn't see this coming. He doesn't understand some things we'll read, especially in Isaiah, 
of, of how the Messiah is going to identify with his people. He, he knows Isaiah 53. He knows that he's going to uh, take the iniquity of his people and all that, but he doesn't expect him to be part of his baptism. But when you watch this scene unfold, also notice that John has a reverence for Christ that no one else in all the world up to this point has, automatically. It, it, it goes back to when they were both in the womb, right? And what happened in Elizabeth's womb when Mary came? John leapt for joy. He responded to the presence of his Savior, not his cousin, not some leader whose model he's got to follow for his ministry in the desert. No, it's his Savior. John knows that better than anybody. And so it would be so odd for Jesus to come to him and, and present himself for baptism. Can, can you imagine being John and saying, I can't do that? Because John understands what he needs. He needs Jesus to baptize him. What should tell us, right, that what some denominations try and teach people, water baptism isn't what you need. You need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, which comes through Jesus, not through the water. So we can make that kind of null and void right now. Verse 15, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he considered. So Jesus agrees. You know, John just... Let it, let it be. In other words, that's true, right? You do need to be baptized by me, John. I don't need to be baptized by you, John. But for now, let it be. Why? Because he's fulfilling all righteousness. Well, what's that mean? It means what I started out saying. He's identifying with the sins of his people. And as he identifies with the sins of his people... He's going to be killed for it. He's going to take the full wrath of God because of it. And he's going to set people free through it. So all those things are being communicated through Jesus being baptized. Okay, It's, it's different when Jesus is baptized versus when we're baptized. Jesus is submitting himself to the Father's will to take His purity and His perfection and die the curse of a sinner's death in order to transpose His righteousness to those sinners. To appease the wrath of God or to, or, or, or to uh, uh, take the full wrath of God due to the sins of his people. And he's going to be that person. You can go to Romans 6 and we can look at this, how he's identifying with us and how baptism proclaims that. Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him 
by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father's we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That whole section there is talking about being dead to sin and alive to God, which is what Jesus came to do. He came to disarm the rulers and the principalities. He came to take away the sting of death wrought by sin. He came to make sure that his people's sins were accounted for, that God was just and justifier, and he came to make sure that they had an eternal hope to look forward to as he's resurrected, so too will his people be. That's why it's fulfilling all righteousness. And it results in some things we can look forward to in Matthew 5. When he gives the Beatitudes, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, we can look forward to identifying with Jesus because he identified with us means a lot of times bad things for us, tough things for us, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, peril, uh, reviling, people saying all kinds of evil against us. If we're identifying with Jesus and receiving those things, then you can surely count on receiving the back half of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be called sons of God. They shall see God. They shall receive mercy. And then in verse 12 of Matthew 5, Rejoice and be glad, you who identify with Jesus, for your reward is great in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is Jesus's, and he's king, and he gives it to you, as he's first identified himself with you, and you recognize that by identifying yourself with him. In our context, baptism here is not like a big deal for people to see. In other words, it doesn't signal in our cultural mind anything that intense. Just like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, they're getting baptized. That's cool. And other cultures around the world, you know what that means? Sometimes it means a death sentence. They have identified themselves with Christ publicly. People are looking for that. So that's how we need to look at baptism. It's, it's so much more than we look to it as, but it's not what some people say it is, if that makes any sense. But with Jesus here, this is everything. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So John obeys Christ, Christ is obeying the Father. Jesus is obeying the Father. And they immerse him in water. Okay? And it says the heavens were opened to him. John Calvin states that due to the Greek words and structure, that's not simply like the clouds parted and the sun came up. That is like there is a, there is a window that is revealing the heavenlies like the presence of God, the glory of God, 
is being revealed in that moment. And what did he see? He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is God, therefore he has the Spirit of God. Why does the Spirit of God need to descend on him? You you have to go back to what Jesus is proclaiming here in verse 15. As a man, he is identifying with men that are not like him. He's pure, perfect, righteous, holy. Men are not. So even taking on flesh, he's identifying as a servant, right? So also he is proclaiming in in this heavenly Trinitarian scene here that the Spirit of God is what enables God's people to be God's people and to act and live according to the kingdom statutes and rules and characteristics and It is the Spirit of God which drives God's people uh, to be ambassadors for Him in this world or to proclaim Him in this world. Because you know what happens next with Jesus. The Spirit drives Him into the wilderness to what? To be tempted by the devil. The Spirit is moving the man Jesus into His public ministry. Jesus is going to perform miracles and do things that only God can do and say things that only God can say. Well, everything he says is what God says. But he is going to do so in flesh. It's not that the Trinity has ever been separated from each other. I think logically you can't ever make that case. But it is a visualization of the reality of who Jesus is. Up to this point, the Spirit had moved people and worked in people and and caused things to happen, but it hadn't dwelt in people, right? That's the promise that God gives us when He talks about the new covenant. And like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel uh, 36 He's talking about putting his spirit within his people. He's talking about a dwelling that he's foreshadowing with the temple and the tabernacle, where God's people actually live with him. Right? And it's not until that that curtain in that holy place in the temple is torn down or opened up as Jesus' flesh is opened up that we actually dwell with him. And then when it is, there's an intimacy a knowing, a unity that is deeper and closer than you've ever experienced in any human relationship. He's there. You're there. This thing is so connected, like the Trinity is connected. Now, hold on. (laughs) That doesn't mean that you're God. It just means you're connected in that intimate, familial way. You're His. He's yours. There's no one doing that. He's created a new creation by identifying with us. So the Spirit, okay, it descends like a dove. That doesn't mean it was a dove. It just means that it that the purity of the scene, the 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 gentleness, the glory of the scene. It, 
is like that. Somehow God manifested to John, who was present, right? And to Jesus, the Spirit's presence with him in a unique way than anybody else. We don't see this happen anywhere else. The only thing you see is in Acts 2, right? A mighty rushing wind moves in to where the apostles are, and they, they have these, these flaming tongues of fire in which they're speaking different languages. They're speaking the gospel in different languages. Okay? But never is it shown to be likened to be just resting and encompassing this person like this. This is unique that the glory of God is present here. It is Blowing John's mind, I would imagine. I don't know how you would see something like that and not be stirred. The Spirit of God is what gives life. Jesus is moving at 30 years of age into his earthly ministry. And, and Jesus will do everything by the Spirit of God, namely because he is God. And we'll do nothing apart from the Spirit of God. Now, you and I as well, we're told by Jesus in John 14 and 15, especially as he talks about, hey, the, I'm going to send the Helper, which is his Spirit, and he's going to help you. And he talks about us abiding with him. We've talked about that a lot lately, right? Uh, he also says this, you can do nothing good apart from me. Well, how are we going to be a part of him? He's at the Father's right hand. He's, how are we going to do that? Well, his Helper, the Spirit. That's how. We have to do everything that we do in His name according to the Spirit. Romans 8 talks a lot about that, right? We see the Spirit give life to dry bones in Ezekiel 37. We see Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3 that you don't control the Spirit. He goes where He goes and you don't know where He's going and you don't know where He's coming from. And in Acts 2, we see the Spirit finally empower God's people uh, for the, the eternal purpose of being His people and for the temporary purpose of being His ambassadors in this foreign land. But the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. And it's pure. And it's right. And it's interesting that he uses the theme of dove, Right? Dove was a clean animal, pure. It's technically a pigeon, but it's a dove. It's beautiful. In Luke 3.22, John says that he saw this descend Bodily. He says there was a visible manifestation of the Spirit. Okay? It, nowhere else is this taking place. Now think about it this way also. The Spirit, the Greek word for it also means breath or wind. You think about breath of 
God. He breathes life into the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. And when you speak, right, you breathe. Jesus is the Word. He is connected wholeheartedly to the Spirit of God, the breath of God. And so then you get the breath of God. Verse 17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is an awesome, beautiful picture of the Trinity that is revealing to the world we are going to accomplish salvation of my people. Everything proclaimed, everything foreshadowed, everything prophesied up to this point is now being inaugurated in this scene. Jesus is going to take over now from the, from the voice of the one crying in the wilderness and he's going to be the voice that is proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's going to be the vessel which is the kingdom of God. He's going to be the bridge to which we cross over into the kingdom of God. He's going to be the purity that washes over our impurity to make us sons of God. This is all about how Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven that Matthew is, is so prone to talk about. This is it. This is my beloved son. This. In Exodus 4.22, as Yahweh is telling Moses how his conversation with Pharaoh is going to go down. He says, you're going to say this and do this, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, so then you're going to say this, okay? Um, at one point, he tells him, okay, you're going to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And Pharaoh's going to say no. So then you're going to say, if you won't let my firstborn go, then I'm going to kill yours. That is a beautiful, loving picture of God identifying himself with his people there as his son. But we can fast forward. Israel's in the promised land. Read Judges. They don't behave like God's son. In fact, they, they break the family code. They break the covenant. They are not worthy to be called his son. You read the book of Hosea. And he's even foreshadowing there. Look, there, there's people that are not my people. And then he changes the name. Those who are not my people are now my people. Okay? And the only way he can do that is by atoning or appeasing his own wrath for the sins, the awful, whorish sins of his people. Well, it just so happens that God has a son who can do that. In Hosea 11.1, 1, we also read that about God identifying with his people that weren't his people, that will be his son. In 17.5, we see God from heaven say this again about Jesus during his transfiguration on the mountain. In 2 Peter 1.17, Peter recounts how he heard this from heaven and he saw it fully confirmed in the life of Jesus. 
it's really important that we understand that a beloved son is not simply just a, oh, my son screws up a lot and profanes my name, but I love him. No. If, if God uses that word to, to call something so uh, precious to him, so intimate to him, if he is calling someone beloved, they're perfect. There is nothing more beautiful. There is nothing more precious. And the awesome thing is that through Jesus, he identifies us with him. Because he identified himself with us. So when he talks about his son being his beloved, and then he says, with him with whom I am well pleased. If you're in Christ, as the Bible often uses that phrase, then you can't be more pleasing to God. To be pleasing to God is to be acceptable. Something that he takes in with, without restriction. Something that he enjoys eternally. Well, <laughs> by nature, I'm not that. But then we get to the the beginning chapters of Revelation, especially in 4 and 5, and we read that the prayers of the saints become a pleasing aroma to him. What? I'm speaking for myself, okay? I'm not worth much. And before God, uh, I'm, I'm just fodder for the fire of his wrath. So to read that because I'm now called a saint in Christ, that my prayers would be a pleasing aroma to him? Who is more gracious? Right? Who is more forgiving? Who is more merciful? Nobody. We can't even fathom the degree or the intensity to which he is those things. But also, understand this about God. He does have a standard, okay? His standard's perfection. The, the, the intensity of His grace and mercy comes in when He gives us His Son as the standard to then make us acceptable in His sight by His standard. That's grace and mercy. He doesn't have to offer us that. His most beloved treasure? And he made him sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God? What? So, when you read that the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, understand that if you're identifying with Christ, as Christ is identified with you in your sin, you are now allowed to identify with him in his holiness. You are a beloved son or daughter to God. And if you believe that, then you have to believe all the promises that he's given you. To care for you, to not leave you, to forsake you, to provide what you need, to know what you need before you ask him. To not have to worry about those things. To, to let you see his face. To let you inherit his kingdom. To let you dwell in his glory. 
to wipe away every tear from your eye. All those are yours. <laughs> That's where the Christian finds hope and joy. That transcends everything. So as Denny was, was given that testimony during his prayer, he was essentially telling us that. That despite what circumstances I face, I have not only a God, but a Father who identifies me as his Son and therefore has promised me certain things, namely himself. Isaiah 42. Isaiah could be a fifth gospel in reality. This points to Christ and what he'll do and what he'll be, even what he'll look like. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Do you see elements in those words that we're now identifying the baptism of Jesus? His soul, God's soul, Yahweh's soul, delights in this servant. What's he say at the end of verse 17? I'm well pleased with him. He's delighting in him. I put my spirit upon him. What, is the, what happens? The, dove, the, the spirit of God descends like a dove on him. And what's Jesus doing in being baptized? He's fulfilling his role as a servant. The flesh that he came to take on, to take on that role of a servant... He is serving the will of God wholeheartedly, unendingly. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The gentleness, the graciousness of Jesus, of God, is seen in this baptism scene. That's why the biblical writers are using the word dove. We're supposed to identify his gentleness along with his purity. And God's pleasure in what Jesus came to do as a servant. And how perfectly pleased he is with the son who does his will. So that we're not only going to identify now as with Jesus as his people just by confession or just by baptism. We're going to identify with Jesus in living according to the spirit of God and not according to the flesh. Because Romans 8 tells us if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death of deeds of the body, you will live. And we live to who? To God, through Christ, working within us by His Spirit, descended upon us by His promise to make us live as sons and daughters of God, with whom He shall be well pleased. I... Uh, I'll stop, okay? But we can't meditate enough 
on, on what it is to be his children. You have and will deal with unspeakable things in your life. And Satan will approach you or your flesh will cause you to say, did God really promise that this would be used for good? Or that I have a hope to look forward to at the end of all this that will make it not worth comparing to? And you'll have to meditate again on the fact that Jesus came to earth, God in the flesh, to identify himself with your sin. If he went to do that, then why would he not identify you with his righteousness and his inheritance? Respond to him now, and then we'll stand and sing.